Thank you for tuning in to the East Denali Baptist Church podcast, where you will hear messages that are challenging to you in your walk with Jesus every week. We update our podcast weekly with new messages from Dr. Richard Sego. And now, Dr. Richard Sego. It's all about his glory, amen. That's what we want him to do, fill us and fill this place with his glory, amen. Take your Bible this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. I am starting a brand new series today, and well, I suppose that's redundant. Every series I do with you at this point is a brand new series. (laughs) But it's entitled, In Defense of Jesus. Now, I realize that in the truest sense, Jesus does not need our defense in order to somehow make an attempt at proving that he is real. After all, he is the I am that I am. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He is the incarnate God himself. If I or you and, or anyone else never gave witness to his existence, he would still be God. He does not need me to be his defense attorney. That being said, however, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we are entrusted with the task to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. We must also be faithful to this mission. We defend uh, our faith with the view of it being about the hope that is the literal historical person named Jesus has provided for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. So for the, for, from the scriptures for the next several weeks, What I want to do is answer four questions that center around the cross and the passion of Jesus Christ. I'll deal with the first one this morning and then one each for the next few Sundays culminating on Easter Sunday morning. These questions are, is Jesus the Son of God? That's the question that I'm going to answer today from God's Word. Number two, is Jesus the only way to God? Number three, did Jesus die for me? And then on Easter Sunday, is Jesus alive? And I want to say from the outset this morning that I make no apology, and I make no apology for it, that I will build my defense, our defense, from the Word of God. I know the world immediately scoffs at that, and they say, you can't use the Bible. That's just a man-made book of fantasy. Well, first of all, let me say, how dare they try to dictate to me what the conditions of the debate must be? No, I am a Christian. I subscribe to the scriptures, and I make no apology for it. Certainly, the Bible is a remarkable book. Unquestionably, the world's all-time bestseller with countless millions of copies in print. Actually, the Bible, you know this, is a compilation of 66 books written by over 40 separate authors from a variety of backgrounds over a period of over 1,600 years. These 66 books, you know, are divided into two principal parts, the Old Testament, 39 books, the New Testament, 27 books. The Bible was completed in its entirety nearly 2,000 years ago and stands today as the best preserved literary work of all antiquity. But listen, a little time needs to be spent on the defense of the Scriptures. And I won't even say the defense, more like just bolstering our confidence and understanding how it is that we can be confident in God's Word. 
Textual criticism is a discipline used to determine the veracity of works of ancient literature. And if we apply these principles to ancient literature, I want you to understand that the Bible stands head and shoulders above every other antiquated piece of literature. Here's what's important when you're applying textual criticism. Number one is the author. Usually the eat is easiest part of the equation to, to establish, that is who penned the book, uh, except in those rare cases, for instance, maybe like the book of Hebrews. Uh, another thing that's very important is the date written. When, when were the words actually penned on the page? And then uh, an imp important factor is the date of our earliest copy of manuscripts. How much time elapsed from the original manuscript to the earliest copies? This is important because the, the longer the distance, the greater opportunity for error and lack of continuity. And then there are the number of copies. The more copies, the better. And comparisons can be made and the preponderance of evidence is better established when you have multiple copies. So it also speaks to just how prolific a piece of literature is. So I want to put something on the screen. My apologies to all of you from here to here. We had this, this projector went down this week. We got to order a part so we couldn't get it in in time. So hopefully y'all can see a little something over there, maybe. But a little chart's about to come up on the screen, and you can do this now that can, will kind of show you a little bit about what I'm talking about. Uh, here you have, uh, did y'all have to read the Iliad? Bless you. Amen. Homer wrote it. He authored the Iliad and, and the Odyssey as well, for that matter. And for years, apologists have claimed that while there are over 5,500 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, there are, by comparison, 643 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. Um, so here you have the New Testament, for instance, 5,500 copies of manuscripts, and everybody wants to question it, while the Iliad or the Odyssey, for instance, only has a little over 600, and everybody just expels it, accepts it ironclad. Oh, this is a legitimate piece of antiquated history. Uh, you got Plato, for instance, there. Uh, Plato wrote the, the seven tetralogies. The Plato Microfilm Project lists 210 manuscripts uh, there. So again, there's just a couple of examples, and I could go on and on and on. I know they've got a couple other slides up there that we can refer to. Caesar, um, for instance, um, he wrote, of course, on the Gallic War. Instead of 10, there are 251 manuscripts. Again, we're talking about over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts alone. In other words, what's the point of all this? By comparing the manuscript support for the Bible with the manuscript support for other ancient documents and books, it becomes overwhelmingly clear that no other ancient piece of literature can stand up to the Bible. The manuscript evidence for the scriptures is unparalleled. Dr. Benjamin Warfield concludes, and I quote, he said, if we compare the present state of the text of the New Testament with that of any other ancient work, we must declare it is marvelously exact. Norman Geisler uh, also makes several key observations when he says no other book is even, is, is even a close second to the Bible on either the number or early dating of the copies. The average secular work from antiquity survives on only a handful of manuscripts. The New Testament boasts thousands. In, in conjunction with all of this, 
There is tremendous support from the early church fathers. That's critical. That means what that does is that shows that early on in the church's history, we have the church fathers who are readily quoting the New Testament over and over again, which lets us know there were a prolific amount of copies available. As noted in the beginning of, 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 um, of a message, in addition to the many thousands of New Testament manuscripts, there are over 86,000 quotations from the, New from the New Testament by the early church fathers. There are also New Testament, New Testament quotations in the thousands, thousands and thousands of our early ex lectionaries, which are worship books, for instance. There, listen to this. There are enough quotations from the early church fathers alone that if we did not have a single copy of the New Testament, scholars could reconstruct all but 11 verses of the New Testament. That is phenomenal. There's tremendous manuscript evidence also for the Old Testament. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove the accuracy of the transmission of the Bible for centuries. In fact, in these scrolls discovered in Qumran in 1947, we have Old Testament manuscripts that date about 1,000 years earlier, 150 B.C., than the other Old Testament manuscripts that are our possession dated about 8900. In other words, what I'm saying is when we discovered the, the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, all of these Old Testament scholars panicked. They thought, oh dear God, we're going to have to rewrite the old, whole Old Testament. If all this is not congruent with what we already have, this is going to be one big spider web. This is going to be a mess. When the reality is, is that once they discovered these Qumran scrolls, they discovered a, a remarkable continuity with those manuscripts uh, from, from 900 years uh, ago. So, I mean, when you look at all of this, we had a full copy of the book of Isaiah that was discovered in Qumran in cave number one. And what we discovered is that that one that was discovered, it compared to the oldest dated manuscript previously known, which was, was, which, which was AD 980, they proved to be word for word identical, which is phenomenal. Church, there is no reason, this is what I'm getting at this morning, there is no reason for us not to use the Bible as our primary source of defense, and that is exactly what I'm going to be doing. I want us to begin by addressing this first question, is Jesus the Son of God? Now all that was just introduction, I'm just letting you know. That's laying the, fram the framework, the foundation for what I want to share this morning. And I'm going to do this from Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God's word this morning. Let's read it together. We are starting in verse 45. Jesus is on the cross. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their graves. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Father, it's my prayer today that that would be the confession of every person in the building today. God, I pray that your spirit would do its convicting and converting work among us and through us. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. And you can be seated. Down through history, people have tried to identify Jesus as everything and anyone other than the Son of God. And there will be some who would just say, you know, Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Uh, someone say, you know, he never really claimed to be God. And by the way, I don't know what Bible they're reading. If they say he never claimed to be God, uh, Jesus himself said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But some would, some would say, you know, Jesus was just this guy who walked around in flowing robe and just spoke pious platitudes uh, everywhere, just a good moral teacher. You remember the history, perhaps, about a man named Gandhi. Gandhi said of Jesus, he says, it was more than I could believe that Jesus was the only incarnate Son of God. I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. Gandhi was sadly mistaken. Some would just simply say that Jesus is a myth. People mean a couple of things when they say this. First, they mean that so, no such person named Jesus Christ ever existed in history. But now, even non-Christian historians don't even accept that theory. Uh, back in 1999, Time Magazine did an article called The Man of the Millennium. And this is an excerpt from their article. They said, the memory of any stretch of years eventually resolves to a list of names and one of the useful ways recalling the past two millenniums is by listing the people who acquired great power. Muhammad, Catherine the Great, Marx, Gandhi, Hitler, Roosevelt, Stalin, and Mayo come quickly to mind. But they go on. There's no question that each of these figures changed the lives of millions and evoked responses of worship to hatred. It would require much exotic calculation, however, to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but in all human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. Even secular, not Christian-friendly publications recognize that Jesus Christ was an historical figure. Even skeptic H.G. Wells said this, he said, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Now another thing that people mean when they say that Jesus is just a myth is that his followers just made him out to be so much more than they were. Now hear me this morning, church. If that's the case, then the disciples should have started a marketing firm. They could have made millions. To think that that motley crew of men, the disciples who, who lived in, in relative obscurity all of their life, could accomplish such a scam in a Roman-dominated society, 
I don't know what they've been smoking, amen, to think that that's legitimate. Listen, as C.S. Lewis said, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, he is Lord. And the scripture proves it. What I want to do this morning is I want you to see some things that happened while Jesus was still on the cross that proves he is the Son of God. You see, scripture records a number of supernatural phenomenon that occurred while Jesus was on the cross. And these events were essentially God's own commentary on the identity of who Jesus was. So it's as if no one's really paying much attention to this man from Nazareth dying on a tree, and it's as if all of a sudden all of nature pauses to proclaim that this is the Son of God. Let me give you several signs here that prove Jesus is the Son of God. Number one, the sun was darkened. The sun was darkened according to verse 45. Jesus had been on the cross for about three hours when everything went dark. At noon, as a matter of fact, when the sun should be the brightest, the world is now shrouded in darkness until 3 p.m. And hear me, it was a universal darkness. The Bible says the land was made dark. That's the word gi in the, in the Greek. It can be translated and should be translated as earth. In other words, darkness fell over the entire world. When Jesus was born, the night sky around Bethlehem lit up with God's glory. But as he approaches his death, darkness uh, sends the ominous message of judgment. A solar eclipse is not an adequate explanation because that only creates partial darkness. An eclipse only lasts for a few minutes while this lasts for three hours also. The Passover was always held on a full moon. And you go look it up. You can Google it. You can check out anything I'm saying. An eclipse cannot happen on a full moon. And we know this is Passover weekend. This was a supernatural act of God, and it's not the first time that he had done something like this. Y'all remember Joshua's day? The sun stood still for an entire 24-hour 20, entire period so that Joshua could complete the battle and defeat the enemy. So God just put everything on hold, stopped everything from turning, stopped everything from moving, and gave him 24 hours extra of light. It was high noon for 24 hours. How about Hezekiah's day? Y'all recall that? When the shadows turned backwards 10 degrees as the earth's rotation seemed to reverse for about 40 minutes. Now I know, I know all the people of science and everything, they'll say that's just simply not possible. That cannot happen. It can when the one who created it reaches down and puts his hand on the earth and says stop spinning for a little bit. It happened. It's dark in the middle of the day. Pitch black. You know that darkness is so often a symbol of judgment in the Scripture. I could give you endless examples. I'll give you these references without even reading them. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 3, Joel chapter 2 verse 31, uh, Amos chapter 8 verse 9, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 30, Joel 2, 2, Zephaniah 1 verses 14 and 15, and Revelation 9, 2. They all point to cataclysmic doom. And indeed, judgment was taking place. God was pouring out his judgment on sin in the body of Jesus Christ. And as this is going on, verses 47, 48, and 49, 
show that some there continued to ignore this testimony to the divinity of Jesus and they just continued their flow of insults to, to Christ. And by the way, verse 48 says that they took a sponge, they, they dipped it in sour wine and they, they offered it to Jesus. Of course, this was a mockery. But how many of you know that when they did that, that fulfilled Psalm chapter 69, verse 21? And hear this preacher this morning. The fulfilled prophecies concerning Jesus are great proof that he's God. In his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell says that the Old Testament contains over 300 references to the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then he poses this question. He asks, what chance did Jesus or any other man have of fulfilling these prophecies? And at that point, he refers to the work of mathematician Peter Stoner, who calculated the mathematical odds of fulfilling, hear me, fulfilling just eight of those 300 prophecies. And his conclusion was, he said, and I quote, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight of the prophecies that he noted is one in ten to the 17th power. We don't even have a denomination for that. We don't even have a calculation. It's not a million, it's not a trillion, it's not a billion, it's not a zillion. As my kids would say when they were little, it's a gazillion. That's how big of a number we're talking about. Now, in order to try to help us to understand, really get it in my mind, or our mind, what the probability of Stoner, how, how improbable it was, he illustrated it for us. And he said, this is what you do. You take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and you place those silver dollars over the state of Texas. Now, by the way, if you did that, 10 to the 17th silver dollars would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. And he said, then you take a Sharpie or some means and you mark on the back of one of those silver dollars. And then if we had means to do so, if you could stir them all up, then you blindfold a man, tell him he can walk from one end of Texas to the other, and then he's supposed to reach down and pick up that one marked silver dollar. He said that's the level of improbability that we're talking about, that all of the prophecies, in fact, just eight of the 300 prophecies could be fulfilled in just one man. And what is something like that screaming? He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. The sun was darkened, fulfilled the prophecies of Jesus. Number two, the veil was divided. At the very instance when Jesus breathed his last, the veil in the temple, it was torn right down the middle. Now I think you and I probably understand at least some of the significance of this. This, this curtain represented a barrier uh, to the presence of God. You see, sin had rendered man unfit for the presence of God. Now, something's happened because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says that you and I, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Aren't you thankful? The tearing of the curtain at the very moment of Jesus' death dramatically symbolized that his sacrifice was sufficient atonement for sins forever, and it now offered a way into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was now open. You see, the Levitical system animal sacrifices, the priesthood itself, was done away with at the moment of his death. 
a new age of salvation had dawned. This was an incredible miracle that happened at the precise moment that Jesus died, and it was screaming, this is the Son of God. Y'all ain't nearly as excited about this as you ought to be. Amen? The curtain that separated all the people and the priest from going into the presence of God, it was blue, it was purple, and it was scarlet, and it was made out of yarn and fine linen. Now listen to me. It was 60 feet long, it was 30 feet high. We're talking about three stories high, and it was about two inches thick. It took 300 priests just to install it. This was a piece of lasting tapestry. And it was designed to withstand all strains, all, all tears, and, and rips. So when Jesus died, this indestructible curtain that separated the people from God was torn in two from top to bottom. The word top there, listen to this. The word top there can also mean from above. And that's a good way of thinking about it. Because it helps us to understand that God did it. This temple was torn from above, from top to bottom. Now, instead of just one person having the access to the Almighty once a year, the way to God now stands wide open for every person 24-7. The result is that we now have unlimited access to God. Everything that has been paid that needed to be paid has been paid in full. We've been declared free and forgiven. And we now have an open avenue to God. We can contact Him anytime. We can go into the Holy of Holies. As a matter of fact, dear friends, I've already been in there today. And I go in there every day because Christ has made a way for me to have access to the Father through His blood. Think about it with me a little bit more if you would about the timing of the death of Jesus. While Jesus is on the cross, the temple is bustling with activity. There's a multitude of priests in the temple getting ready to make the normal evening sacrifice. And since this was the Passover, there was a heightened awareness, kind of a, a sense of, of, of awareness of, of, of all, because the Passover lamb is, is about to be sacrificed in the temple. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus died precisely at 3 p.m. on Friday. Listen, this was the exact time that the priest would have been making the evening sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, who is the final Passover lamb, at the precise time that the Passover lamb would have been sacrificed in the temple, Jesus is breathing his last and yielding up his Spirit, can you imagine what must have been going through the priest's mind? I know, I have to just try to, I don't know about, you ever just let your sanctified imagination run a little bit? I've wondered, what did the priest do when the, torn, when the veil torn, did they, did they run out of the temple? Scared to death, it's about to be consumed with the glory of God? Did they cover their eyes? Did they drop to their knees and wait to be consumed by God's righteousness and wrath? Did the Passover lamb itself jump off the altar and scamper to freedom that day because the true lamb of God had taken his place as well as ours? The symbolism is profound. 
through the blood of Jesus, our sins have been paid for, and now we can experience forgiveness and eternal life. We can come boldly into his presence. Once a year, the high priest solemnly lifted a corner of the curtain uh, to go in with fear and trepidation, hoping that he would make it back out. Tradition tells us that they would tie a rope to his ankle just in case he wasn't fit to be, be before God, and he died. They could drag him out so they didn't have to go in there and risk their life as well. At the very hour when thousands of lambs were being slain, the true Passover lamb would die, and it was and is a testimony to the fact that he is the Son of God. Number three, the earth was dislodged. Two weeks ago when Bo and his team were in Puerto Rico, we got a text one day. He said, hey, you guys might want to pray for us. We just had an earthquake. Very nonchalantly. <laughs> he said, and he said this to me, Terry, this got kind of, since everybody was okay, it made me laugh. And I got a weird sense of humor sometimes. He said, the guys that were up on the lift when it happened, they're a little shaken. <laughs> Literally and I think emotionally. He said, okay, well, Bo, we'll pray for you. Julie and I were in an earthquake years ago down in Mexico. It is quite unnerving. When you wake up in the middle of the night and your bed's bouncing across the floor, you know, uh, un it, it, it is a bit unnerving. Well, there's an earthquake. At the precise time when Jesus dies, there's an earthquake. At the very moment of Jesus' death, verse 51 records that there was an earthquake, and it also adds this, rocks split in two. You know, God using earthquakes is nothing unusual, is it? The Bible, when, when Moses met God at Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the Bible says, and I quote, the whole mountain quaked greatly, Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. They are also equated with the judgment of God. The book of Revelation indicates that the final judgment of the earth will commence with a global earthquake more, power, more powerful than any ever experienced before. And as already noted, this was a day of judgment as God is judging sin through the body of Jesus Christ. He is our substitutionary atonement. God is pouring out on Jesus everything that you and I deserve. Perhaps there's even by the earthquake, I don't know, perhaps there's a, an indication here that, that, that God is expressing some anger over the fact that man's sin is costing his, sin, his son so much. The Bible points to the darkness, to the divided veil, and to the dislodged earth. By moving on to number four quickly because number three and number four go together. I want you to see that the dead were dispatched. Verse 52, and the graves were opened. See, when this earthquake hit and these rocks split, the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Graves were opened up, and many saints were raised from the dead. This is the only one of the miracles that I'm talking about this morning that didn't happen at the cross that day. And this is what I mean. Verse 53 says, the graves were open, but no one came out until after his resurrection. Did you get that? Why? Because 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, nobody was risen until after he was risen. He was the first fruits of the resurrection and now all who die in him are resurrected as well. So this was a foretaste 
of the resurrection that all in Christ will have. Now, these that are resurrected are presumably Old Testament saints that rose from the dead. Now, not all of the saints rose from the dead. What does the Bible say? Many rose from the dead. Now, now, contextually, hang with me for a minute. During the three Sabbath days that followed the crucifixion of Jesus, the entire graveyard, if you want to talk about it like that, the cemetery, lay stripped of its covering of the dead. The inside of these graves could be seen by all, by the puzzled, by the hurt, and by those who were just curious. And they were seen by thousands of both followers and enemies of Jesus Christ. These graves were opened and they would stay open until the three days of Sabbath had passed. Why? Because the restrictions of the Sabbath prohibiting manual labor would, would be restrictive on loved ones, etc., being able to get out to the cemetery and cover everything back up. They'd have to wait it out. And you see, we need to think about what would go on for those three days. I'm going to pull from an Old Testament example. How many of you remember Rizpah? In 2 Samuel chapter 21, David had given over seven of Saul's sons as retribution to the Gibeonites whom Saul had sworn to slay in his zeal for the children of Israel. Now two of Rizpah's sons, along with the five other sons of Saul, were delivered to and hanged by the Gibeonites. And you remember how maybe after that happened, Rizpah camped by their corpses and did not allow the birds of prey to come and to devour the remains for five months. This distraught mother had camped by the bodies of her slain sons and fought off the birds of prey by day and probably wild animals by night. The people thought that she was mad, but it was love, not madness, that kept her there. So, with that as an example, it's quite likely that, like Rizpah, family members guarded these graves over those three days until the Sabbath was, would pass, and then they could, you know, put the dirt and put the rocks back in over the graves once again. So here's what I think. When these people finally was resurrected after the resurrection of Christ, there was literally hundreds of witnesses out there in the cemetery that probably got the fright of their life. And I love so how so nonchalantly the Bible says things without really any explanation. This Bible says these folks got up out of the grave and they went to town. That's what it says. You want to talk about a real live episode of Walking Dead? You had it right here, son. Don't you know that that kind of caused a stir in town just a little bit? You know, I was thinking this miracle right here may exist more for the Christian than the non-Christian. Because the early Christians now knew that the promise of Jesus... Uh, for a resurrection after death was true. There really was eternal life. Death's sting had been eliminated. Nonetheless, it is still related to Jesus' death and points once again to the fact that He is the Son of God.
Let me give you one last sign. I don't have a point for it, but it may be the, it may be the greatest sign of them all. It gave evidence, or, or all this evidence led to the confession by the centurion and others as well. You say, why is that so critical? Well, we're talking about a confession from someone that's not predisposed to make the confession, right? You see, I, I read the scriptures, and, and somebody might say, you, you, Pastor, you, you read the scriptures with a bias. You, you're predisposed to believe everything in it, to which I say I'm guilty as charged. It's the Word of God. It's the only book God ever wrote. I believe it from cover to cover, from Genesis to the maps. I believe it all. So yes, I, I, I confess. I'm predisposed to believe the Word of God because I believe in the God of the Word. So here you have a centurion, a, a hardened Roman soldier who is not predisposed to confess that this, this Hebrew that just died on a cross is indeed the Son of God. But listen to what the Scriptures say, Matthew 27, 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This is one of those places that it's actually okay to read into a little bit here, and I say that very lightly because that's not a normal practice of hermeneutics, but this is what I'm saying. You know what they're saying? You know what this guy said? We just messed up. This, this man that we just crucified, was not he's not a normal man. He's not just some guy that lives on the backside of Palestine in his own place who worked for his dad was a carpenter. No, he was the Son of God. Truly, he was. A centurion, the leader of a hundred-man division of Roman soldiers, career officers, hardened men of war. But after having become an eyewitness of everything since Jesus was taken to the praetorium, he would have followed the whole procession. These same soldiers had him strapped to a post for the scourging, and they watched while he suffered that horrific beating with quiet grace and dignity. They battered his head with a reed. They, they wove a crown of thorns, and they pressed it down on his brow. They had spat on him. They had taunted him and mistreated him, and Jesus never cursed or threatened any of them. They heard Pilate declare on more than one occasion, I find no fault in the man. They watched him be sent to Herod. Sarah sent Herod essentially come to the same conclusion. There's, nothing, there's no fault in him. Send him back to Pilate again. These were professional soldiers. They had dutifully nailed him to the cross as was uh, they commanded. They heard him pray for his murderers while he was on the cross. They experienced three hours of darkness that they could not explain. They witnessed an earthquake at the very moment of death, and they could no longer ignore the fact that he is the Son of God. It suddenly became all too clear to them. They had crucified the Son of God. The centurion remembered the indictment of the Sanhedrin that Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God. And now having witnessed Jesus' death up close and personal, he rendered his own verdict on the matter as well. Truly, this was the Son of God. Calvin Miller is an author that I don't always agree with, but he, did, he wrote a book entitled Once Upon a Tree, and this is what he writes, and I quote, he said, God succeeded 
in validating Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Standing near the cross was a soldier whose daring whisper of truth was heard above the clamor of unbelieving slander. He was impressed with Jesus' meekness. He marveled at the calm even on the timbers of death. Life, real life, always begins for us on the dark side of Calvary when we encounter the cross and affirm the centurion's statement of faith. Surely, Jesus was the Son of God. Now listen, he goes on, he says, Jesus was not delusional when he claimed to be the Son of God, but we are deluded if we claim to believe anything else. Is Jesus the Son of God? Historically, the answer is yes. Biblically, the answer is yes. Even experientially, the answer is yes. If you're ready to confess that Jesus is more than just a man, more than just a myth, but that he is actually God, you need to act. Intellectual belief in Jesus is a start, but it's not nearly enough. You all know James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Intellectual assent is not enough. How many of you know you can believe in soap and die dirty? Right? You got to do something with what you believe. Repent of your sin. Trust Christ today. Surrender your life to Him. What is required is that you submit to the lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ. Just believing is not enough. You need to act. Repent of your sin and come to Jesus today. Give him the reins of your life. Now look, I've, I've been saved now 31 years. I got saved when I was, when I was actually 17 years old, senior in high school. And, and here's what I'd say about it. I've never regretted a single day since then of walking with Jesus. The only thing I regret is not doing it sooner. I pray today that your confession will be Jesus is the Son of God and I also want to take Him as my Savior as well. In just a moment, I'm going to be standing right down front. Brother Josh, Brother Terry is going to be down here with me. If you'd say, you know, Pastor, I don't have assurance I don't have assurance that Jesus is my Lord. I don't know for certain when my life is over on this world and I check into the next one that I'm going to be with the Lord in heaven forever. I just don't have that assurance. I pray that you will move toward having it today by coming, letting one of us talk with you, counsel with you, pray with you, and I pray that you'll move into a relationship with Jesus Christ today. Have your sins forgiven. If you're depending on anything other than the finished work of Christ on the cross for your salvation, you need to get this nailed down today. I urge you to do so. Believers, believers, take heart today. This one in whom we confess is the son of the living God. And as sure as he was resurrected, we will be resurrected as well. There's so much hope to be found today as a believer in the Son of God. Amen? Maybe you want to just gather at the altar. You know, I'm going to probably make a call like this just about every week. The altar's always open because when God's moving at this moment, when He's put His finger on your heart, it's time to make a response. Amen? Sometimes it's a, a cataclysmic kind of decision. I mean, a transforming kind of decision. And other times you want to just get and say, Lord, I praise You because You're the Son of God. 
So it's always open for you too. Any that want to unite with this precious church family, Eastern Ollie Baptist Church, we encourage you to come as well. Father, I thank you today that you're Lord, that you are, you are God, Lord Jesus. You are God, the Son of the living God. No grave could hold you. Death could not keep you. And you overcame, proving forevermore that you are the one and only Son of God Almighty. Lord, we, we rejoice in you today. God, it's good to explore these pieces of evidence for your deity. But God, we don't do that just to just so that we might catalog a few more facts about who Jesus is or about the Bible. No, Lord, there are facts, there are evidence, Lord, that moves us. I hope and pray moves us to a confession that you're the Son of God. And Lord, if there's any here today, and I suspect that there are, who've never, ever made the, the final one-time decision of their life to follow Jesus, that they would do it today. They would choose to become a Christ follower. They would turn from their sin. They would turn from the world. And they would turn to you. Confess you as Lord. And Lord, your, your word is true. That if we will confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. God, we hold on to that promise today. And God, if there are people here that, that need to confess you, then I pray that they'd be willing to just step out of that seat this morning and make their way down to talk to one of our counselors at the front today. I'll trust you, Lord, to do what only you can do, and that's convert hearts. I pray it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the East Sonali Baptist Church Podcast. Be sure to go to our website, eastonali.church, to find more messages like you just heard and to find out how to be more involved at Easton Ollie. If at any point during this message you made a decision to follow Jesus or you would just like more information about Easton Ollie, email info at God bless and have a great week.